I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. You might hear in my voice that I'm a little bit sick this week, but being under the weather, it got me thinking about wine's use in medicine. Today we think of wine as a recreational drink, as a commodity to enjoy on its own or with a meal. But there were times in our past when wine was once considered a medicinal beverage. Egyptians were using wine as medicine by 3000 AD. Sumerian clay tablets show wine was stocked in ancient pharmacies. In ancient Greece, Pliny the Elder wrote, In vino sanitas, or, in wine, there is health. Good thing I have plenty of wine around. Hippocrates used wine to cure fevers, and also prescribed it as a digestive aid. If you had jaundice, rheumatism, or anemia, he'd be recommending a wine similar to vermouth, a wine that had wormwood bark soaked in it. The ancient Romans were using wine to cure depression and memory loss. Cato had many medicinal suggestions for wine. Got tapeworms? Mix wine with some pomegranates. Got gout? Throw some juniper flowers or myrtle flowers into your wine. Second century AD, Dr. Galen had some wine remedy suggestions as well. If you are hurt in a gladiator fight, he'd use wine to clean your wounds. And he was the doctor of some pretty famous gladiators. As Marcus Aurelius's doctor, Galen came up with an entire range of medicines, later called theriacs. Many were wine-based and taken regularly by prominent leaders because they were thought to build up tolerance to poisons. Theriacs were also used to combat mouth sores and the plague. These drinks were an integral part of medicine up until the awakenings of modern science in the 1700s. Now, where did Galen get his ideas? He got some of them from King Metridates VI of Pontus, who experimented with poisons and antidotes on his prisoners. The successful remedies were mixed together into recipes that had healing and preventative powers. This brings us to Andromachus. He was Emperor Nero's doctor. Andromachus expanded upon the recipes and created a recipe with over 60 ingredients that would help keep Nero safe and resistant to poisons. Related medicines were used for the next several centuries. During the Black Plague epidemic, 
Gentile da Foligno recommended such a medicine to combat the plague. But I'm not sure it worked so well, because even though he was drinking the stuff, Gentile died of the plague. Similar recipes were monopolized in Venice, and a famous medicine called Venice Triacle, which used wine from the Canary Islands, it sold for top dollar and was still being carried and sold at pharmacies in the late 1800s. Ancient religious texts also refer to wine's healing capabilities. The Talmud states that wine is the greatest of medicines. The Bible notes that wine was used to wash wounds and settle stomachs. Hindu Veda texts outline wine's use as a medicine. Wine steeped with medicinal herbs still exists today as kinati, retzinas, and vermouths. When distillation technology spread, people began applying the same technique and infusing herbs and other botanicals directly into alcohol. The healing powers of orange peels and barks could suddenly be harnessed more easily. Today, we use these bitters mostly to flavor cocktails. They used to also be used for flavoring wine. Colonists in early America drank canary wine flavored with bitters, and today we have a wealth of amari and bitters that come from this tradition. Why was wine so popular as a medicine? Well, first, it was preventatory. Adding wine to drinking liquids decreased the chance of getting a disease from microbe-infected water. The alcohol content in wine also made herbal and animal remedies soluble in a palatable format. For instance, in China, the skin of a viper was recommended to ease stomach pain and bleeding intestines. But that snake skin goes down much easier when it's infused in wine. Medicinal herbs dissolved in wine also came with the added benefit that the drinker became a little tipsy, or doctors might say the drinker became a bit sedated or tranquilized, and thus less prone to complaint, especially when the medicine included a little opium, which was pretty common. The early creators of these types of healing alcoholic beverages were considered physicians, though today their practices would more closely be aligned with that of a bartender. Though most bartenders cite Jerry Thomas, a famous American barkeep from the 1800s, as the father of American bartending, in an odd way, these ancient doctors are the real ones who founded the current bar scene and made some interesting drinks for kings, pharaohs, and aristocrats along the way. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand
Tim and Davi on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? I am doing very well, Levy. How are you doing? Nice to have you here. Good. It's terrific to be here, too. I, I'm enjoying this already. So you're born in 1951. Why, yes, I am. <laughs> and I remember that because I served you a, a Charles Krug wine from 1951 a few years ago. At Alto. Yeah, that's right. I and, remember. And it seemed to bring up some memories for you at that, oh, at that yes. moment. Yes. It, well, it was terrific uh, that you had that wine on that, uh, on that list. And we were there very towards the end of it, but it also enjoyed a, a, a good reputation. I love Italian food. and I tried my best to ruin it. But, yeah, uh, well, yeah. well, I don't know. It, uh, I don't think you ruined the wine and you didn't <laughs> ruin that meal. That was a terrific meal, as I recall it. But I was there with my family and uh, wanted to have a waltz down memory lane. And you used to, as a child, waltz around the Charles Krug Winery. I did. I was uh, born in St. Helena in 51 and grew up at Charles Krug, and it was my playground. I knew it from a kid's perspective better than anybody, and it was uh, such a kick. Lots of fun times. What were some of those? What would tend to happen? All year round, after a bit of time, there were a small number of people that were interested in seeing the winery, and uh, my father had begun tours at the time. Nobody had thought to do that prior, and so it was a new thing in Napa Valley is to actually visit a winery. And uh, so people would come by, and of course I would play on top of the redwood tanks and attack them because they were moving, and I was a kid, and it was they couldn't see me. I would look up uh, if if they would be looking up inside the winery, inside those uh, tall tall building that was built in in the 1860s, and the redwood tanks would be there, and the lights would be below the top of the Redwood tank, and I'd be on top of that. So they would look up, and they could not see the top of the tank. They couldn't see us. They would be blinded, and so we said, aha. So I felt like I was uh, like a bird on one of the Gary Larson cartoons where we would always look for the bald guy, and we would uh, nail them with... Uh, Tygon tubing that was for sampling barrels and tanks, and we would put little uh, berries in them and attack away, and we had the best time. The guides would take chase, couldn't find us because I had lots of hiding places in this old, fabulous winery. Anyway, old memories. And your dad was famous for having devised the whole lunches and tastings on the lawn with a few hundred people outside. Well, exactly. You've done your research, Levy. Yes, um, because it was very difficult. Back then, Californian wine was not something that uh, uh, people were proud of. Even though California wine had received accolades prior to Prohibition, it would win awards uh, in all kinds of places, in America as well as in, in Brussels, London, Paris. Uh, so California wine was regarded quite highly, so much so that there, there grew to be a very high number of wineries, 121 wineries, I think, at the count that I have seen that's legitimate. I've seen higher numbers, but 121 is the legitimate number, I think, or more. 16,000 acres of vines, prohibition hits, everything goes out of business, as you can imagine. And not only did it go out of business, it went out of business with a bad reputation because when repeal came about, America wanted alcohol. It was in love with what it couldn't have. 80% of the industry of Californian wine became fortified wine. My grandfather, who had gotten into the wine business for the table, table wine, kind of was uh, against that type of thing, but uh, he was part of the industry and had a little bit of fortified wine, of course, but really focused on table wine because that's 
where our heart was. That's what brought us to the, to the table, literally, was uh, wine for the meal. At any rate, the 30s and 40s, Californian wine was still dominated, 80% of it, by fortified wine and identified with the guy in the park bench. And as a result, it painted a very bleak picture for Californian wine. So people would say, oh, I only drink French. Well, there were great wines being made at that time. Engelnook, Beaulieu, Charles Krug were striving for greatness. At the same time, the mindset of the public wasn't receptive. So many of them went out of business. And it really wasn't until 1966 that my father, after 30 years in the industry, um, knew that he had to win over the, the identity uh, for Californian wine. You could only do that with a great product and perseverance in the marketplace and an identity that would compare the best of California with the best of Europe. And so it began the real emphasis, but along the way, brought people in from San Francisco for the lawn tastings that you remembered. I hadn't mentioned that to you before, but the lawn tastings were a big deal. The medical friends of wine were advocates for wine. Back then, they knew that wine was healthy and good for you in moderation. And uh, it was the medical friends, the doctors that were part of the advocates of the early, early Californian wines. And so that was uh, terrific. But now I think we have, everybody knows that Californian wines are amongst the best in the world in those special areas and with the people behind it that are really committed. And your dad had taken a trip to Europe in 1962. Yes, it was the first time that he had gone to Europe. And on that trip, uh, he was still at Charles Krug Winery at the time. He was um, interested in a number of things. From a wine production perspective, he met with the Demptos family. They brought him Which is to, a cooperage family. There's a cooperage, yes. They were a, uh, one of the best cooperages. And you would go to all the first gross of Bordeaux, and they would all have Demptos barrels. All the first gross had Demptos barrels. And so uh, Monsieur Demptos, Louis Demptos, became a friend of our families. And we, uh, my father brought barrels in at that time for Charles Krug, became convinced that there was a difference between new French oak barrels and used whiskey barrels. That was the norm. Aging for wine in the early days of California uh, was a very different thing. It was a very different scene. But the aging of California wine was oftentimes in tall redwood aging tanks. And then also for a short period of time, maybe six, seven months, in used whiskey barrels, American oak whiskey barrels. And I remember the barrels coming in, and there was always whiskey at the bottom of it. And so that was quite a kick for a young kid. The real fortified wine. Oh, oh yeah, the real fortified <laughs> Oh, yeah, Brandy's uh, is the real fortified wine. Burnt, burnt Lees is uh, as it goes. But at any rate, so, so barrels, new French oak barrels, is what Robert Mondavi Winery began. In 1965, my father left Charles Krug began Robert Mondavi and wanted to be the best in everything. Rather than uh, revitalizing an old fermentation cellar that he could have done, there were still many around, he said, no, I want to start new. Brought in the first new stainless steel tanks, the first in the industry, uh, Chateau Latour and Aubryon also. I think Aubryon was first. Aubryon was first, yeah. Monsieur Delmas would tell us. For fermentation. Uh, for fermentation, yes. Yeah. I think I think Aubryon was. Yeah. And Monsieur Delmas would tell uh, us that. He said, your father taught me this. So, uh, yeah, it made a lot of innovations, technically. 
with barrels, with... Uh, Cold temperature uh, fermentation for whites. That was something that my uncle had developed at Charles Krug. Chenin Blanc was one of the most important wines for Charles Krug, and it was the cold fermentation that they had uh, developed that really allowed freshness to be retained and brightness of wine and a little bit of CO2 as well, bottled early. So that was quite a hit. It was a big, big deal back then. But that was quite innovative to be able to have cold fermentation. Again, my uncle uh, Peter, who still is uh, going strong at 99 years young, still going strong. And they uh, say the name a little differently. Uh, well, yes. Um, uh, I grew up as uh, a Mondavi. And when my father started Robert Mondavi Winery, he wanted everything to be done right. The, the name was Americanized because during the Second World War, it wasn't necessarily all that desirable to be Italian. And in fact, for a long time, it wasn't all that desirable to be anything other uh, than a wasp. So Mondavi was easier to pronounce for people, and it was a little easier. Uh, you get the story. So let's set the scene a little bit in terms of how that all got going. Cesare and Rosa were from the Marque immigrated into Minnesota, Minnesota, worked in the restaurant and bar business for miners. They originally followed my grandfather's brother into the mines, and there was work to be had. My grandfather immigrated in 1906. He had like uh, 20 bucks in his pocket, went up to the Iron Range, Hibbing, Minnesota, same place as Bob Dylan was born. My father was born there, but uh, my grandfather worked in the Iron in as a miner, his brother was killed in the mine, and uh, he, my grandfather, Cesare, decided to move above ground, had a boarding house and a saloon and kind of a vegetable, uh, a produce stand type of thing there. All the Paisanis uh, would stay with them at the boarding house, and um, my grandmother would take care of the meals on the table. Fabulous. She was a, a fabulous cook. Uh, and my grandfather would take care of the business and developed a, a friendship and a reputation among the people there. He was the secretary of the Italian club. And when Prohibition hit in 1919, people came to him and said, Cesare, here, take my money, take my cash. And he gave him his cold, hard cash. They said, go to California, buy grapes, and we'll make home wine. And it was legal to produce, uh, each head of household could produce four barrels worth of wine a year. And so there was more wine produced by more people during Prohibition uh, than any other thing. It was the only legal thing. And I think it was legal because wine has always been identified as part of the sacraments for Judeo-Christian religions. And therein was the opening. Uh, the other opening is that every doctor takes the Hippocratic Oath. And Hippocrates is the Greek scholar and uh, doctor who recommended wine for your health. And so wine was always a part of good living in moderation. So that was the other. Uh, so it was uh, okay for medicinal purposes. It was okay for sacramental purposes. And it was okay for home use. Those are the three exceptions during Prohibition. So it was that that allowed my grandfather to come to California to discover the regions of California and um, was then able to buy grapes from throughout the various par areas of it, moved his family out to Lodi in 1922, so uh, three years after Prohibition began. And upon repeal, he got involved in three areas, in the Fresno area, in the Lodi area, and also in St. Helena in Napa Valley uh, for the purpose of making bulk wine. And so he uh, continued grape shipping 
and then added bulk wine shipping, and uh, that was fine. When my father was graduating from college three years later in 1936, my grandfather, Cesare, said, Bobby, Bobby, go to Napa Valley. That's the future. And so my father did. And he worked at Sunny Stadelina Winery for uh, quite some time until they had developed a, a tremendous reputation. My grandfather and my father and the owner of Charles Krug uh, wanted to sell uh, Mr. Moffat. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of stories there, but uh, long story short, uh, my grandfather was able to purchase Charles Krug Winery in 1943 at the urging of my father, and he had a business plan, and and it uh, was the first time we bottled wine, uh, 1943 or 44. I don't remember if it was 43 or 44, but it was certainly by 44. So that was the beginning of our career. 1919, grapes, 1933, bulk wine can, added on to the grapes, and then bottled wine at Charles Krug in 1943 or 44. So I grew up at Charles Krug, and it was uh, a great place to be. And who was around you at that time? Well, um, again, in 1919, there were about 121 wineries. That dropped down to a low of about 12 at the low point. And 16,000 acres of vines in Napa Valley down to about nine. And then there were a number of wineries that began again after Prohibition. But uh, Louis Martini Winery was founded in 1933. It was the first uh, winery post-prohibition. It used the technology uh, of that time. And there were no new wineries until 1966, when my father built from the ground up the first brand new winery to be built uh, since uh, 1933. And it was then that he committed, after 30 years in the industry, um, to he knew quite a bit about it. After working in the cellar, both at Sunny St. Helena Winery and then at Charles Krug, and working in the marketplace and all. So he began uh, then in 66, uh, committing to have a different paradigm. The, the industry was completely different in 33. Fortified wines, and then it was completely all, it was also still very, very much a generic business. Non-vintage, generic wines were kind of the norm. There would be uh, wines uh, such as Burgundy or Chablis or Claret. That was the norm. Lots of unusual things, many different types of wines, champagne, you know, sparkling wine, fortified wines, all kinds of different generic wines made from many different varieties. Lots and lots and lots of different varieties. Very few of the varieties that we have come to know Napa Valley for. Very few of the quote unquote noble varieties. So in 1966, my father uh, decided to focus absolute focus on, there were just, I don't know if you can believe this, but there were only nine wines at the time. Incredible. Only nine wines. I mean, there could have been 50 <laughs> wines or so made by all the other people at the time, whether it be Christian Brothers or Engelnook or, uh, you know, all of the names that we know from that era. So to really do something with a brand new winery, stainless steel fermenters, uh, French oak barrels, just the nine noble varieties, and doing it as we felt was the best way. So very quickly, my father developed quite a reputation, and it went up from there. So it was clarity of focus, a commitment to hard work, not only in the wines, but also in the marketplace. 
So that led to great success of Robert Mondavi early on. I was able to work there every year, every summer, from 66 through 74. 74 was my first full-time year. I took a year off in 1970 when I went to Europe for the first time with a buddy, and we traveled all over the place. And you went to the Demptos family. We saw the Demptos family, and they were very instrumental for me, and the Drouin family, actually, in uh, in Burgundy. Well, I was struck by Robert Drouin. He took me on the first tour I had in Europe with a, uh, a buddy of mine. And uh, we went with Harry Serlis. Uh, he, um, Robert Drouin was giving Harry Serlis a, a, a tour. Harry Serlis was then the, the director of the Wine Institute of California. And so I had met him before, but I was just a kid in, uh, in college. And uh, uh, we were able to tag along. Uh, so Robert Drouin was very generous to us and very gracious to me because he thought highly of my father. And that was kind of a decider trip for you in terms of it deciding was. to go back. And, and even more what? so with when I was in Bordeaux with the, the Demptos family. Louis Demptos uh, took me under his wing. He had a, a wonderful wife, a fabulous family. Uh, his brother, Pierre, basically ran the operation of the cooperage. He also did, was, but also was more out in the market and presenting the barrels. Uh, their son, Philippe Demtos, was a great guy. That, And so they showed, brought us to all the first growths of Bordeaux, many different areas. But the thing that will stick in my mind forever is they first picked us up and brought us to a Sunday meal. With There were three generations of the Demtos family and the Saunders family. They had Chateau Bataille, which was out near the river. They It was uh, late summer. Peaches were in season. I had three entrecots myself. <laughs> I had, I don't know what kind, but it was, it was incredible. It, this was an extended family that was, that was completely harmonious. Just, it was a, the, one of the most delightful family experiences uh, I can remember. And it was a deciding factor for me because at this time, uh, this was after my father had been kicked out of the situation at Charles Krug. There was a litigation going on Robert Mondavi was well underway, and my brother was there, my father was there. I thought they knew everything there was to know about wine. Because um, your brother was head of winemaking at the time. He was head of winemaking at the time, absolutely. And he was had work with Warren Winyarski and with Mike Gergich, uh, and I was there, and then Zelma Long was involved. I came on, I was there every summer, but then I came on full-time, and there was kind of the handover from Mike to me, starting with the 74 Vintage. And uh, uh, so it was uh, an interesting time, a very interesting time. It must have been because you take over in 74 and then 79 is the first vintage of Opus 1 and probably a lot happened in that five-year period of Mm. time. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I learned a lot and I continued to be able to work with a lot of great people. You know, having been able to work in the summertime with Warren Minyarski and with Mike Gergich, uh, to work for nine years with Zelma Long, who is uh, uh, such a wonderful lady, uh, a wonderful lady. But there were a tremendous amount of things that were going on. She left to take over the winemaking and then the presidency of Simi. And uh, Opus had just been announced. And then I was able to work with Lucien Siano, who was the winemaker of Mouton Rothschild. His beginning year at, at Mouton Rothschild was 1966. And he uh, worked there until he retired in, in 1984. Did you have a close relationship with him? Oh, I did. He was like my uh, Venice uh, French father. 
he didn't speak English, and I would get by in my high school French, and I learned a lot of French because I would go to Poyac often to study their winemaking techniques and to work with Lucien, and he was a wonderful man. I very much enjoyed him and uh, getting to know Baron Philippe a bit. And What was he like? I had many more interactions with Lucien than I did with Baron Philippe, but uh, Lucien was a very humble man. And he was a very, um, it was said of him that the first time that he had traveled to Paris was as he was en route to visit us in California. So he was from Poyac, Poyalet, actually. And so he was there his whole life and worked at Mouton. It was the only place he'd ever worked. And it was, it was Europe of a different era. It was Europe of a time when people, it was very unusual for people to go even to the next village type of thing. And although it wasn't quite as severe as that, I think there's more truth in that than than not. So I don't think he'd ever tasted Burgundy. You know, Bordeaux is your whole life. and Well, not Bordeaux, but Poyac is your whole life. So our global vision today is taken for granted, but it wasn't the case back then. And maybe it wasn't for your family either in terms of you're growing up with a lot of Italian immigrants around, your dad being very close to the Italian immigrant community, your grandfather being very close to the Italian immigrant community, and both of them developing really strong personal sales techniques in the, inside of that community. Oh, yes. No, that's true. That's true. However, my father was very unusual in that he went way beyond just any narrow confines. He always was curious as to what was out there. And so although 62 was his first trip to Europe, uh, he went many times thereafter and would make a point of leading groups of us from Robert Mondavi so that all of us would be able to learn firsthand. And he would say that as much as he would preach certain ideas, you know, no one would get it without experiencing it themselves. And so he wanted to make sure that they that important people, not only in the winemaking, but also in selling, in in hospitality. Uh, the other there, in addition to the graciousness that the Demptos family expressed and everyone did express in uh, in Europe, he was um, so interested to see how the people at Moet Hennessy or Moet Chandon would receive people. And the design of Robert Mondavi Winery uh, reflected what he had seen there in that they would have these beautiful palaces or beautiful estates. And some of the family members would receive people, and each of the people would be received in a private group in a small room. And so in addition, at Charles Krug, there was a tasting bar And that was the norm. And he welcomed people into this tasting area. And it was very innovative to have tours and a tasting bar. But he said, no, 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 I want to have small rooms. Have it more intimate. Have it more personal, like your family. And there will not be a bar that will separate the host from the people that are there. We will be around a table. And we will receive people as if it's in our home. And he saw that at Moet Hennessy, or at Moet Chandon. And so there were many things that he saw and uh, no, he was, he was uh, very perceptive and very in, uh, interested in learning the lessons from the best and applying it in our own way. Not to copy anyone, but be inspired by what they did and then to make our own wine in our own way, in a way that we liked. 
Because Charles Krug had, as a winery, focused on California sales within the California market. Yes. And Mendavi, when he started in 66, seemed to want to sell to the whole country. Well, to the whole country. And I think Krug did sell, in fact, also to New York and to uh, all the areas that were strongholds of Italian wine, historically. Uh, There were many wines. Uh, Fortissimo was a big seller. It was a, a big, dark, wine with a jug, you know, a handle on it. It was a jug wine. That was uh, an important, uh, there were many different lines of wine, many different types of wine. And it still is actually at Charles Krug or for CK. Uh, so the Italian community was always a very important part. And Napa Valley became Little Italy to a great extent, because if you are starting a venture that's important, you want people you can trust. And, uh, so it's only natural you bring people that you can talk with, that speak your own language and understand your own work ethic. And so there were a lot of Italians in Napa Valley, in St. Helena, that worked with the Martini family, worked with Mandavis, worked uh, with the olive oil uh, shop. There were many different people. So it was uh, an important part of uh, my growing up. Now, I've, never th- I've always been proud of my Italian roots, but I've also been aware of the fact that my mother claimed to be 200% Irish. Now, how she got to be 200% Irish with a Belgian father, uh, I don't know, but uh, she did it. <laughs> so your dad starts up the Robert Mondavi Winery with a partnership with Rainier Brewing Company in 1966. It's a new facility. It's on the main drag in a way, and what could be called the main drag now, maybe not yes. at that time. Oh, it was, yes. Yeah, in 1966, my father had two partners. There were Fred Holmes and Ivan Schock. And uh, Ivan Schock was a grower, a viticulturalist in Napa Valley. Uh, Fred Holmes was a friend, and they both helped Dad get going. Uh, Dad was also uh, loaned money by a a very good friend, because he really, all of his assets were tied up at Charles Krug. So he began the winery with basically borrowed money, and he consulted with the Mirasu family and got income from them. And uh, two years later, uh, Fred Holmes and Ivan Schock sold out to Rainier Brewing Company. And it was uh, in 68 that uh, began uh, a larger expansion. And that expansion was done in part with custom crushing of uh, wine in mind, particularly for Pillsbury had a uh, some wines that they wanted made. So my father expanded the winery, developed that, and they, uh, I think it was by 19, I think it was by 74 or so, uh, or 73, they were not allowed to carry on with their second wine because of the Tide House rulings. And they just broke the contract and left my father high and dry. And the, uh, that was the beginning of uh, the table wines. And I don't remember exactly the first year, but I think it was by 74. And so red table wine and white table wine were born. Then in, uh, with the settlement of the lawsuit in 79, Woodbridge came into our fold for uh, a very complicated reason, hard to explain. But it was a settlement between my uncle at Charles Krug and my father. Yeah, Woodbridge comes into the fold, and then what happens next? Yeah, well, and then it was uh, because then we we had to absorb all the wines that uh, were there, and so Woodbridge uh, leapt to incredible success, and um, Woodbridge became for me an opportunity. It was a discovery vehicle for me to understand the wines of the state of California. It certainly it began in Napa Valley and in the North Coast, but it quickly 
grew to wines throughout California and uh, developing a connection with the best of them. From that then, developed the uh, coastal wines. I was then against their morphing into uh, Robert Mondavi private selection, but we, our board decided they knew better anyway. And I'm getting myself a little bit out of sort uh, sequence Because here. the coastal stuff was mid-90s, right? Like yes, we went public 96. in 93, and our our board over time decided that they knew better, and uh, I think that overused overused my father's good name. And so, at any rate, that led to uh, tarnishing of our top-end wines, a growth of uh, Woodbridge and uh, our table wines, Woodbridge and the, and the private selection wines. But uh, unfortunately, the damage for Robert Mondavi from a high-end entity anyway, was under underway, the lack of clarity. And so, at any rate, that led to the demise of my family's involvement and uh, the takeover then of Robert Mondavi Company in 2004. But I will say that the good side of going public is that it did allow us to develop relationships with the Frescobaldi family in Italy and led to our ability to purchase Ornelia as well. Uh, we had a relationship with Eduardo Chadwick in uh, Chile uh, with the wines of Senya, which were intended to be the Opus One of Italy. I should also say that Luce was intended to be, the, uh, in my view anyway, the Opus One of, of Italy. It was the first partnership of its type in Italy and the first partnership of its type in uh, Chile. And so it was uh, an amazing period of time that broadened my perspective, certainly. It led us also to... Um, well, I spent a lot of time in France, in the south of France, purchasing wines for, uh, uh, with the intention also of developing a winery there in the Anian area, uh, just north of Montpellier. Beautiful area, beautiful area that had great potential, and we wanted to have wines of the Rhone, which it is part of the Rhone, the broader Rhone. There and was very- some local organization <clears throat> against that. There was some local protests. There was. Originally, the mayor of uh, Anian wanted us there. Uh, The mayor of Montpellier wanted us there. Uh, The uh, secretary of agriculture of France welcomed us there. But there was a mayoral election in Anian that the the mayor that we were friendly with was outed, and uh, a communist mayor was elected, and the hunters that were uh, worried about the vineyard land led by um, uh, Emmy Guibert of Maz de Mazgazak led a protest against our being there, and we looked at ourselves and said, okay, <laughs> we don't want to go anywhere we're not wanted. And so actually Ornelia took place instead, and uh, not a bad trade. So let's take it back a little bit. Your dad starts the winery in 66. He's 53 at that time. Yes. And it seems like he was running to make things happen at a very quick pace the whole period. Yes. Maybe to make room for the the children. He had three. You're the youngest son. Or maybe because he wanted to show professional success to maybe his mother or to his brother or to regain his own sense of his own good name. Why do you think he pushed so hard so quickly? Oh, golly, I think my father just did. There was something in him from the beginning. It was part of his nature. He wanted to excel. Uh, He was very, very, very smart, um, uh, very ambitious. And he he wanted, he was just incredibly competitive. And um, he was born in 1913, lived through the Depression, 
learned the uh, value of hard work and uh, the importance of being competitive. Uh, you snooze, you lose. And so he didn't. He just kept going and going and going and going. And uh, there was always a bigger opportunity. And so he, and he, there was a lot to prove uh, about to regain and to establish Californian wine as uh, being among the best in the world with our own style. That was a big deal. And so he set about doing it. And I think with lots of other people supporting, uh, was able to prove that Napa Valley wines, Californian wines, uh, do deserve to be recognized among the finest in the world. What was he like as a dad? I know what he was like as a wine guy. I mean, the history well, is definitely there. He was, uh, you know, I always uh, felt his love. I always felt he was uh, wanted what was best for all of us. He was demanding. I think it was easier for me as a younger son, but I also always felt his love. Uh, but he wasn't there very much. You know, he was traveling. He had a build, He had Krug to build. He had Robert Mondavi Winery to establish and to go. Uh, not only did we have to produce the finest wine possible and to discover how to make how to make it tick, we also uh, he had to present it. So um, that was a big, big deal. But with perseverance and commitment and uh, inspiration and leadership, tremendous leadership. I think that uh, we were able to do it. You know, I would characterize my father getting away from things more into the business side of it. Uh, he is not a good manager. He was he was not a good manager, but he was an incredible leader. He was insightful. He was good to people. He was uh, generous. He built a team that was focused on on success, on learning. He was very demanding, especially I think of uh, Mike and I. But he was demanding of everyone, but he expected the best of everyone. He made you feel you could do it and uh, inspired people. So uh, I certainly felt that, and I think everybody did. Uh, there's a spirit every time we run into refugees from Robert Mondavi, you know, people that work with us during the, that great period. You know, it's always, boy, that was the best time of my life. You know, it was, uh, we all had a mission. Uh, it, there was something greater than ourselves. There was always something greater than ourselves. And so that was a great spirit that my father established. It was a lot to learn from. Did he surprise you when he said, Tim, I want you to make the head of winemaking choices from 74 on? Well, it was, I think, in 76 that he asked me to do that. You know, my father was always encouraging. He would always push us and encourage us. But I was also had the good fortune of working with a lot of really great people who accepted me, and I accepted them. I respected them, and they respected me. And so it wasn't as if all of a sudden I came in and said, okay, here I am. <laughs> uh, I don't need you anymore. I needed them more than uh, I otherwise would have because it was more important to me to make damn sure that the wine was right, the best it could be, and I knew that I needed them uh, to learn from them in all of these things. And as things evolved, I was able to learn different things from different people. So uh, I work with people, and I think it's the best way. It's I still do. And it seems like there was always a program of experimentation, of oh, trials, absolutely. of tests. What did you see uh, along the way? You've said before to me that it was Pinot Noir that helped you better understand the Cabernet program. What did you mean by that? Well, because we had a number of different wines at Robert Mondavi, there was Riesling, Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, Fumé Blanc, Pinot Noir, Cabernet were the most important varieties. We had Gamay and Napa Gamay, uh, Gamay Rosé and Napa Gamay, and Petit Syrah. 
but we stopped some of those earlier on. And I think to know what a wine is, I think it's important to know what it isn't. And by having different varietals, it really helped you to do that. Uh, when I was at school at Davis, I joined a, a wine tasting group that the upperclassmen had when I was still a, a freshman or sophomore. And they were tasting wines of Bordeaux because Professor Guyman loved Bordeaux. And so that was great. But I had recommended to them that we taste, you know, different varieties and blindly. I said, oh, kid, you know, these, these were upper, upperclassmen looking at this underclassmen saying, yeah, we're way beyond that. We're way beyond that. Well, you know, I didn't know what the differences were as much. And so one of the first things I did when I started at Robert Mondavi full-time was to taste all of our white wines blind and say, okay, here we are. We're making these wines. We are lovingly caring for all of them and we're presenting them. We should know what they are. We should be able to get all of them perfect. Well, you know, surprise, surprise. You know, we could tell the sweet from the dry, but sometimes Fumé Blanc tasted like Chardonnay and vice versa and Shannon and Riesling. And so we began to differentiate, try to identify what the essence of each individual variety was and what it wanted to be and what were the um, classical definitions of it and why was that? What was it going on that would make Burgundy or Pinot Noir taste different from Cabernet? And so we really had to parse that out. My recollection of what life was like when I went back when I was in school in the early 70s was that St. Davis would say all red wines should be fermented at 75 degrees, you genuflect, say amen and do it. All white wines would be fermented at 55 degrees, you genuflect, say amen and do it. And that was the end of it. And it was obviously that's an oversimplification, but there was a standardized winemaking protocol for reds and for whites. It didn't differentiate amongst varieties as much. Again, varietal wine thinking was not part of it. Frank Schoonmaker will be celebrating his 80th event tonight, I think, here in New York. Uh, but Frank Schoonmaker was one of the first to identify varietals and begin to use them, begin to popularize them, because prior to that time, all the wines of Europe would be sold generically. But generic there had a meaning, whereas you know Burgundy meant Burgundy. It was from Burgundy, whereas Burgundy in California meant it tasted soft, according to the guy that made it. So there was no meaning of what Burgundy or Claret or... So varietal consciousness was something that has come relatively recently. So we at Robert Mondavi were part of what helped parse out the differences, variety by variety, why, you know, um, not vineyard by vineyard early on, later on, yes, very much. But it was more about winemaking. It was more... There, there were a number of great periods. There was the period of, uh, you know, the, the Spanish missionaries brought the grape to California. It was the um, German immigrants that really put California wine on the map, Napa Valley wine on the map. Berenger and such. Yes, Charles Krug, Jacob Schramm, 1861, uh, Charles Krug, 1862, uh, Schramm. 1874, I think, uh, Beringer. But the German immigrants really put uh, Napa Valley on the map, and it was incredible. That fell away, and then upon repeal, it was all generic wines, as we've talked about. But that persisted until maybe the first brand-new winery, with very rare exceptions. And so to be unique in developing varietal wines, vintage-dated varietal wines— was a big deal. And so, but it didn't have the superstructure 
technically to really support that. So we developed that and uh, for ourselves. So you think your dad had the vision to sell it as varietal and then you developed the vision to make it as varietal? Well, I think that's, you know, I think that my father had the vision to sell it as a variety, to recognize the individual varieties and to present them in their best way as we knew how. But I don't think that we really differentiated until uh, we began. And I never really thought of it quite the way you articulated it, uh, Levy, but I think that that's basically true. And when you looked at the Cabernet program, your dad had acquired Tokalon. You're building Opus One across the street, different spacing. What did you find from dealing with Cabernet? Because I find that the old Robert Mandavi Cabernets, up until, when I say old, I mean up, in, up until through like 99 are some of my favorites, dating back to 77, 85 mm. is quite good. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when I think of Cabernet Reserve, tell me that story. Well, Cabernet Reserve, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon is one of certainly the first varieties, uh, as I'd mentioned. In 1971, Robert Lawrence Pulzer had, uh, from the Los Angeles Times, had a big tasting of all the Cabernets of California. I don't know I don't know if you can believe it, but all the Cabernets of California, it was quite extensive. I mean, all 23 wines were there. All 23 Cabernets <laughs> were there. And there were as many winemakers there. So, uh, yeah, 23, if you can believe it, uh, or some such number. And Bob chided my father for uh, not recognizing his own baby. But Robert Lawrence Balzer was the Robert Parker of his day. He um, uh, was a terrific advocate for wine. And our 1969 Cabernet came out first place. And it was the thing that really put Robert Mondavi Winery on the map early on. But the winemaking at that time was an extension of what had happened at Charles Krug. And at Charles Krug, the grapes would be would come in and wooden crates be put into a, uh, a wooden backboard with a cleated rail that would take the grapes up a wooden conveyor down into a huge valley destemmer. Then it would go into the open-top redwood fermenters. It would be there for about three days until it had adequate color, and then go down into troughs, into then be pumped into the large redwood tanks, to complete fermentation and to um, and then age and then a, a short period of time in whiskey barrels, and that was fairly normal. It was normal at Beaulieu. I talked with Mike Gergich about it not long ago, and that was fairly standard. Some people had cement tanks. Some people had uh, redwood. In 1966, shifting from open top fermenters, the wines developed hydrogen sulfide. There was H2S because they were closed, not nearly as open. And the umbrella sprawl viticulture of the day required the dusters to go through and pump in a lot of, lot of sulfur dust. And when you have uh, that situation, you end up with sulfur. If it's open, it blows off. If it isn't, it doesn't. And so there was needing to get accustomed to that. But suffice to say that there were short skin contact, uh, seven, eight, nine, ten days was the norm at that time. The wine would be drained and uh, uh, kept in stainless steel tanks for an extended period of time, and we would agonize over which lot we would put into which barrels. Barrels were very, very important at the time because we were one of the very, very few people to have new French oak barrels. Lee Stewart had them also about the same time, but 
our barrel program was much, much more substantial in terms of the numbers and our research on them as well. But uh, we would wait for a long, long time until we knew exactly the right one. It was so important. And so we would oftentimes barrel the wines down to barrel uh, just prior to the next vintage. And so, and then we would barrel age them for an extended period of time, oftentimes as long as 30, 30 months. And then we would go there where the best of the wines were bottled without fining or filtration. And that was kind of the norm for the winemaking. We evolved that to have much longer skin contact time. Um, Lucy and CNO brought in the idea of about 21-day maceration period. We did a lot of experimental work around that time, around that question. We did a lot of research work around temperatures of fermentation. We brought in an IBM System 7 that allowed us to have temperature control in a way that had never been done before. Uh, so we began to experiment with different temperatures of fermentation and found that warmer temperatures gave more opportunity for extraction of good things. And so we would have different temperature protocol for Pinot Noir than for Cabernet, different maceration uh, times. So we began to differentiate tremendously about what we felt the different varieties really wanted to be, intentionally to amplify their own strengths. What is it that they do best? What do we think will emphasize that? What is the classic way of achieving that? And then how do we want to interpret that for our own wine? So there was a tremendous amount of uh, uh, question. Uh, the research program we had at Robert Mondavi was, I think, by far one of the finest research programs anywhere for fine wine. There was nothing else like it. I think Moet Hennessy in uh, Champagne had tremendous research, obviously for Champagne, and also for uh, more sophisticated because they also were making perfume um, with LVMH. And uh, so they had a, a very sophisticated program going. But for table wine, as we were doing you know, we had a tremendous number of people that worked with us. Uh, Michael Weiss, who was now the winemaker at uh, Groth and has been for a very long time, worked with us in the experimental program. Lisa Vanderwater worked with us on yeast early on. She has her own lab now. Donine Dyer worked with us. She then went on to work with uh, Edmund Modier at Demet Chandon, and now she has her own label. Uh, of course, the people that I've mentioned... Um, Warren Minyarski with his own winery, Mike Gergich with his own winery, Zelma Long, and she and uh, another fellow from Robert Mondavi, Phil Fries, have their project in South Africa, which is uh, something that they're doing incredible things there too. Paul Hobbs worked with us for a bit of time. You know, there were just a tremendous number of people that came through what came to be known as the University of Robert Mondavi. So the conclusions are reached, the experiments are, are having been done, you've seen the data, you've made alterations to the plan, and then in the late 90s you're criticized in The Spectator for perhaps not having enough extraction in the wines. How did you feel about that at the time? Well, I felt quite disappointed because we were criticized for not following the new trend of pursuing what we felt at the time to be uh, ungainly wines, uh, wines that had a rougher tannin, wines that were clumsy. Uh, our wines were always intended to be for a meal. They still are. Uh, our wines are always intended to be have a natural vibrancy, a natural uh, soul, a personality. Uh, they still do. 
but it was a big deal. And so I, no one would touch my father because he was such an iconic figure that no one would ever be able to approach him, but they could take me to task. And they did. And um, so I was kind of the whipping boy for, um, first I was on uh, Robert Parker's uh, heroes list for all the experimental work that we were doing. And again, Pinot Noir taught us the way uh, towards uh, very naturally raised wines, uh, wines of personality and distinction. And uh, and so we were called the Prince of Pinot Noir by a number of people because we focused on it and we treated it like Pinot Noir for the first time uh, with great results. So he called us the, uh, he put us on a, his heroes list with a number of other winemakers as well. Uh, only a few years later to be wop- you know, wiping the floor up with me uh, for um, skinny wines. I think there was may have been, maybe this is my own ego protecting me a little bit, but I think that both Lauby and um, Parker were also in disagreement with some of the rapid growth that we were experiencing at Robert Mondavi at the time with lots and lots of other things. You know, oddly enough, I too was a huge, uh, I did not like many of the things that we did. I think we were, as I mentioned before, overusing my father's good name, getting away from the clarity of focus that brought us to the dance uh, so incredibly powerfully. And, um, but again, they were, they were wine critics, not business critics. Uh, and no one would ever take my father to task for anything, but our wines uh, were uh, then criticized, and I was criticized, and in fact, in 2000, for using oak fermenters. And people said that, gosh, you know, why would you want to use oak fermenters? People in Bordeaux are using them for barbecue now, you, you fool. Well, now you look at Bordeaux again, and there's oak, and there's cement, uh, and uh, you look at California, and there's oak, and there's cement. We were just a little bit farther ahead of the trend at Robert Mondavi, and I think we are now with our new baby continuum, which I think it's the first time I've said continuum in this whole period of time. Because I was in that cellar recently, and there's both oak and cement fermenters yes, on that cellar. Absolutely, and no stainless steel for fermentation. So you leave the winery that your father built in 2004 with yes. your brother and your sister. Right. What leads up to that, and then what is in your mind walking out the door? As I mentioned, the overuse of my father's good name is what I think led to the lack of clarity of our best wines. And so uh, that went up in smoke. Um, I was first put on leave of absence. Uh, my, my brother was also kind of ousted, and there was kind of a takeover uh, from the family. Uh, the board basically took over the family, and, uh, and things were so divisive. And we could have ousted the board but as a public company, it's a very difficult thing to do. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, I would rather... And it, it had been 10 years in coming, 10 years in coming and sowing the seeds of our own demise. Because he went public in 93. Well, we went public in 93. And I think then some of the policies of the overuse uh, came home to roost. And uh, as much as I was against... I was. I was in love with a number of the things that we did, and I was very much against some of the over overuse and the lack of clarity that we had. So maybe closer to the project in Italy with Ornelia, but less close to some of the coastal wines or what well, was I, happening with Woodbridge. You know, I was proud of the wines that we produced, but I felt that the branding of them was clearly riding on the coattails of uh, Robert Mondavi Winery. And I felt that it was incredibly confusing and that it was 
basic stupidity. And it gets back down to if you call something something, you ought to be able to identify what that is. And you ought to say, yep, that's my wine. That's what it is. And, uh, you know, I would say to any of our board members, can you guys do that? You can know, you identify these two wines blind? No, 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 could, like, yeah, could they, could they line up our offerings and identify what they were? Yeah. And there's no way in hell they could. Like they couldn't no tell the difference between the taste of the Woodbridge wine and the taste well, of the... Well, you know, that might be a little extreme at the same time, but yes, there were too they many offerings. They weren't wine people. There were too many off. They were just not wine people. And they just didn't understand. And to me, it was... Uh, it was uh, it was dishonest, and um, so you know it's not dishonest. However, it was stupid business as far as I was concerned. It clearly sacrificed uh, all the hard work we had at the highest end uh, for a quick return on the lower end. And again, I was very proud of our Woodbridge wines. I was proud of the wines that came from the Central Coast, but I wouldn't confuse them with the wines I was also proud of at the very highest level. So um, therein lay the uh, uh, split. So come 2004, that's all over. My brother is uh, on to his own thing with his children. And uh, he has a company now that he is enjoying very much and uh, is doing a great job with uh, importing many wines from Italy and Spain and uh, various Some of the areas. connections from the Mandavi Corporation. Yes, yeah, like he carries on with the Frescobaldi, and- exactly. And, so that's, and they're a wonderful family. And so he is carrying on with that and doing very well with that and has his own labels as well, many, many of them. And, um, and my sister and I joined forces and together we did what I like to think I do best, which is produce a single wine from a single estate and shoot for the top. And that's what Continuum represents, our commitment to producing one great wine from this incredibly fabulous property that we are lucky enough now to have. Your dad gave a an interview in 2003 where he said it's going to take a, a long time to get our good name back. He felt that the name had been diluted. Was this, in your mind, the best way of getting that name back was to break shop, start up a new winery? Well, I had no choice about the breaking up the shop. Uh, we never wanted to sell Robert Mondavi Winery. However, I am, I, what I emotionally wanted to do was to hold on to Robert Mondavi Winery and to somehow um, differentiate it from all the other Robert Mondavi entities out there. I knew it would be impo- you know, very difficult to do, and I'm very fortunate that we were not successful in that. Uh, I was also very, uh, the next thing I wanted to do was to hold on to some land from Tokalon. And I had an understanding that I would be able to buy that. Well, okay, that understanding went up in smoke. And the Marjorie's uh, Vineyard, the one that's named after your mom. Yeah, we put my mother's ashes there. And um, so emotionally, we wanted to hold on to that. But the best thing that ever could have happened was to have a completely clean break and to look at Napa Valley with fresh eyes. As I did, I realized that my whole career, my whole life, effectively, once Robert Mondavi Winery started, was Tokalon-centric. Um, and everything was judged from the perspective of Tokalon. Which is a valley floor vineyard along which, yeah, the Yeah, it's the, the vineyard in Oakville. It's a vineyard that we um, um, owned, and we had 530 acres of Tokalon. And uh, so I managed it and cared for it with an fa- incredible team. And knew it rather well. However, with the complete separation from Robert Mondavi Company, all the things, the things I loved and the things I was <laughs> uh, resenting, 
all of that went, but I took with me all the lessons that we learned along the way and the commitment to produce a single great wine. And we had done it before in Opus. We Robert Mondavi Reserve was recognized top of the game, and I vowed that we would do it again. So with my sister and my children and my father, uh, we began Continuum. And we were very lucky to get the name Continuum, which is a small story in and of itself. But three others had it and weren't able to make it. It didn't resonate with them, but it did with us. People said, oh, yeah, I get it. I am third generation. Uh, my grandfather Cesare, then Robert, myself, and then my children, four of my uh, five children, work with us actively. And so Continuum is a great name for us. Every year is a new year. Every year is a continuum. Uh, people have their anniversaries, and it's a continuum. Every year we have an opportunity of discovering our uh, the nuances of our single estate. And so I'm in hog heaven. You know, I am. Uh, I've never been happier in my life. Uh, this property that we have is gorgeous in every regard, absolutely every regard. Classically, the best properties uh, have southerly and westerly slopes. Our property has southerly and westerly slopes. Uh, it's up in the mountains. It's uh, 1,300 to 1,600 feet of elevation. Uh, we have vines that are established, planted in 91, 96, uh, some in 2004. Our babies are planted in 2004, or no, 2010, I mean. Uh, but the average age of the vines in our wine is now about 20 years old. So it makes us one of the older vineyards on Pritchard Hill. We are high on Pritchard Hill. We're the highest average elevation uh, from 1,300 to 1,600 feet. And interestingly enough, we are Oakville with altitude. If you um, draw a straight line from the Tower of Robert Mondavi Winery and go east uh, southeast across Highway 29 through the crown of Opus 1. It points directly to uh, Continuum. Uh, we are just above Dalla Valley, which uh, Naoko is a, a wonderful lady and a good friend, and I absolutely love her wines. I think that they are some of the best classic wines of Napa Valley, current classic wines of Napa Valley. So, Did that affect your decision to go to Pritchard Hill? Absolutely, it did, because um, uh, she is on that same red, rocky, volcanic soil uh, that is just below. I think her vineyard is maybe 400 to 600 feet. Uh, we are 1,300, so we're quite a bit above her, but the exposure is basically the same. And the soil is derived from that same volcanic uh, activity, red, rocky, iron-rich soil that is makes four incredibly distinctive wines. What do they taste like? Oh, golly. <laughs> I should have you describe that, uh, Levy. You can describe wines better. I can say, I like that one, and this is what I need to do to get it where I want it to be. Probably better than you can, but I think you can describe the wines a whole lot better than I can. Well, how have they changed in the 10 years? Like. Well, in the in the ten years of continuum, and this is our this will be coming up to our tenth year. Uh, the O five was our first. We have the first three vintages uh, are originated in Tokalon. The O six is one hundred percent Tokalon. The O five had thirteen percent from the vineyard contiguous to my home because the understanding I had with Mister Big, uh, Mister Big said, "Well, kid." Uh, I don't know, but uh, maybe the home parcels. We we can't do the Robert Mondavi thing, and we can't uh, do the Tokalon thing, but maybe the home parcels. Yeah, we can do that. So anyway, I, I believed him. <laughs> but, you know, it was a great way to begin. Tokalon is a great vineyard. 
My father knew what he was doing when he went there in uh, 1966. He bought it for Charles Krug in uh, the late 40s, early 50s. It was a great balance between yield and quality. Very deep soils, very well-draining soils, but also high tonnage, high tonnage. Um, the fellow who used to manage the vineyard for Charles Krug was called Alex Bianco. They called him 10-ton Bianco. Every now and again, he would wink and say, yeah, but I can get 12. <laughs> so uh, now that was different uh, criteria as well. But it is a very productive vineyard, but it's also a, a great vineyard. Has that been a challenge for you to get such production numbers on the hill of Pritchard? Oh, we're not trying. <laughs> we are trying to do what the vineyard wants to do. And uh, we are trying to honor that. And our yields are... Uh, well below the floor of what was acceptable at uh, Opus One and at Robert Mondavi, we are down to one and a half to two tons per acre uh, for our vineyards. So it's extremely low, more like uh, Grand Cru Burgundy uh, yields as opposed to even Bordeaux yields or certainly uh, Napa Valley yields. And what about the grape mix in there? Well, we I wanted to... First of all, do something that um, my father established the varietal mix for Robert Mondavi Winery, and it was very much a Medoc model. Uh, the first growths were uh, the the be all and end all at the time. The recognition of the other areas was not as well known. Uh, the classification of uh, the right bank came around '66, I think it was, uh, and it wasn't really known because it hadn't been out for very long. So it was the classification of 1855 that covered the Medoc and Aubryon, or Grave that uh, really held sway. And so the varietal mix that was followed was uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, small amount of Cabernet Franc, and Merlot. Early on, there was not a lot of, petit, there was no Petit Verdot, nor uh, Malbec. In the 70s, we collaborated with the University of California at Davis with their block in Tokalon that we would give water for, we would help support, we would help manage the vineyard to a certain extent. But we, in exchange, got uh, access to Malbec and Petit Verdot and did trials with them on small lot basis. And I immediately wrote off Petit Verdot. It was clumsy, it was aggressive, it was not what we wanted. We wanted wines of elegance and finesse. Boy, that Malbec is such a promising wine. Well, I was a younger winemaker, and the wines were very young, and uh, as I would go back to them, uh, it just uh, turned around to be the opposite. Petit Verdot went from an ugly duckling into a beautiful swan as it aged, and the Malbec, which wa promised a lot in terms of color and floral fragrance, lost its middle uh, in aging. And so I still don't care for Malbec. At Tokalon, I didn't care for Merlot. It was too vegetative for Continuum. So, But Continuum, in its desire to be different and also to orient towards my palate, which was much more uh, right bank than uh, the Medoc. Cheval Blanc doesn't do so badly for me. Uh, uh, pretty damn nice. Uh, although Merlot, again, doesn't do as well in Napa Valley. But the Franc is the, the distinguishing feature. And whenever I would do retrospective tastings as the winemaker for Robert Mondavi, going back to the beginning, the vintages I liked the most often, often had a very high percentage of Cabernet Franc. So I had a very strong predilection towards a much higher percentage of Cabernet Franc than uh, our style at Robert Mondavi really had. But I wanted to honor that and evolve that. Again, looking at the wines of Naoko Dalavali, 
her Cabernet Franc does incredibly well in Maya on that red rocky soil. But even before that, I love Cabernet Franc. When the I thought that the wine would be from Tocolon, Marjorie's Vineyard, uh, we had uh, our first three vintages are about 58% Cabernet Sauvignon, 23% Cabernet Franc, and about 19% Petit Verdot, no Merlot. So each of the three vintages from Tocolon were about that, from blocks that I had planted high density for the Cabernet Franc and uh, Petit Verdot and the very old vines of Marjorie's Vineyard. So that was the first three vintages. Then Mr. Big cut me off, uh, and I found other blocks. Uh, and But mo- most importantly, I found Mecca. <laughs> you know, this property up on Pritchard Hill is uh, absolutely to die for. And it wasn't because Pritchard Hill was really known to me anyway or revered to me. You could just see it in the soil. You could see the aspect. You could see the evenness of exposure of the block that we first got. The Grand Cru's, if you look at the Grand Cru's of Burgundy, there is an evenness of exposure, an evenness of slope, so that that balancing act of balancing the vine, first of all, starting with a great site, but then the balancing act of balancing the vine to the site, you have a chance to do it if you've got an evenness of exposure. Then you balance the fruit to the vine, balance the winemaking to the fruit. They've got an advantage if it's the right exposure and it doesn't have gullies and hills and valleys. That way the fruit doesn't ripen unevenly. You really do need to be able to prune the vine to vigor. You need to be able to balance the vine. You need to balance the vine first to the site. And uh, if the site is incredibly variable, that's a hard, that's hard. It's even harder. It's even harder. So this one site that I saw, I fell in love with. Beautiful even exposures just above the lake house. Uh, you've seen I've that. Seen that yeah. It is incredible. Uh, it was planted in 91, and to this day, it's a superstar. We have other blocks as well that also have even exposure uh, and good, and they are coming into their own. They were planted in 96. But I think that you know we are blessed with such a great, great site and a good vine age, and now a team that uh, is able to care for them and get to know them better and better and better every year. And that's why these great, the, the best wines in the world come from classic estates that have uh, sites that are gifted with a team that is committed and well-heeled and are unified about that and then have the chance to do it again and again, and again, and again, and again. That's that's what leads to greatness. So you started your own winery when you were 53, after a falling out at the family winery. Your dad started his winery when he was 53, after a falling out at the family winery. Did you see parallels at the time? Do you see them now? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're 0 for 2 in terms of uh, peaceful transition. But I will say that uh, this transition took place without lawsuits. And my brother's doing great things. And I like to think that we're doing great things. And we are working to first make a very successful entity. We, I'm very proud of our efforts at Continuum. I'm very proud of our wines and our team. And I'm delighted with the response that we've had to Continuum. And I, you know, four of my five children are working with me now in Continuum, which I love. Uh, that may not always be. There may be other things that uh, they will be interested in, uh, which would be terrific. They're free to stay. They're free to go. I want them to be happy. I want them to be challenged. But I do want to be successful at transitioning to them over time. And we're working towards that. 
But the first order of business is to make a successful entity, something that uh, people are proud of. Uh, first of all, your family, your own family is proud of. And then also that is uh, something that you have a commitment to your customers and the people that enjoy wine. And so and so far, everything is going incredibly well. Uh, I have, again, I've, I've never been happier in my life and uh, very proud of what we've accomplished and, and uh, optimistic about our continued uh, achievements. Tim Mandavi, he's been working in Napa for many years. His family's been there for even longer, and he's optimistic about the future. Thank Absolutely. you very much. Tim Mandavi of Continual. Thank you very much. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Travis Morningstar helped with the editing of this episode, and in my opinion, he did a pretty good job.